We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 42 with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today, Dr. Garfinkel interviews Dr. David Hurst Thomas of the American Museum of Natural History. Well, welcome, everyone, to the uh, Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We are graced and excited and blessed to have uh, Dr. David Hurst Thomas who will be sharing with us this evening as our guest scholar. David hails from, currently from his association, long-term association, as uh, in essence, director of prehistory for the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Did I get that right, Dave? You got it right, Alan. Not a lot of people do. (laughs) Well, well, welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. Uh, how many podcasts have you done in your lifetime, David? Geez, I don't know. I'm not. I'm kind of new to the podcast world. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm a, uh, you know, they ask me how old I am, and I say, well, you know, I'm 68 years young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the, yeah. This is uh, uh, kind of a new deal for me. Well, D- well, David, you've uh, been a prestigious and, and central figure in the uh, development of anthropology, anthropological archaeology, and also, the, your, your cutting-edge research on uh, all things anthropology, archaeology, indigenous cosmology, and even a taste of historical archaeology, I understand, 
So how did you ever get yourself involved with all of this? Well, you and I both hail from UC Davis. Right. Way back when. Yeah, way back when. And I showed up at Davis because I grew up in the Bay Area and uh, had, a, had a biology professor, uh, if that's what you call him in high school, but he was a practicing vet. And I, I was all set to go to med school. I'd had a couple of medical issues when I was in high school, and I thought an orthopedic surgeon was going to be the way to go. So I told him that, and he said, well, if that's true and you want to go to med school, then you've got to go to UC Davis because there are a hell of a lot more medical schools than vet schools in the country. And if you can make it through pre-vet at Davis, you can get into medical school you want. So I went up to picnic day and thought it was pretty cool (laughs) and decided to do that. So I got into Davis and afraid to go to Berkeley and took all the pre-med stuff, which it turns out is not a major. It's a whole batch of classes. You have physics and chemistry and and biology and zoology and the rest of it. And most of the pre-meds, certainly at Davis, ended up majoring in one of those suckers. But I had a longstanding interest in American Indians. And so I thought, well, hell, if I've got a bunch of uh, electives, why don't I take Native American classes? And I did. And I had enough credits to thought, geez, maybe I ought to major in anthropology instead. And it had, in your junior year, you had to take a dig class. So I didn't know about that. But we went out in the Napa Valley in the middle of a vineyard and dug sites for uh, Saturdays. And that just seemed like the coolest thing I'd ever done. <laughs> why, did you, why did you like it? What was good about it? Oh, I loved everything about it because of the discovery part and the scientific part where you're taking field notes and you go out every Saturday and you are seeing something in the ground. And I've told my, my kids this for a long time. You're the first person in hundreds, thousands of years who's come along on this particular thing you're digging up. And you've got a connection, not just with that artifact, but with those people. And I know it sounds corny, but it's really true. You know that feeling, too. Oh, absolutely. So I got, oh, man, this is kind of cool. So the other part that was starting to shape up back then is we had a second field school in Old Sacramento, down in in the part where they were just starting to do the urban renewal on the old uh, 49er. You know, everything flooded. The 49ers came to the Sacramento River and everything flooded. So they moved the streets up, elevated them 12 feet. And so everything from the 49er era was buried down there. And as they were doing urban renewal in the state capitol, uh, we did another field school there and actually got a job in the summer from the Park Service. And this is way before uh, CRM archaeology and the rest of it. But I, I got to do that for a summer. And then it became kind of a deal, geez, medical school, grad school. And Davis gave me a scholarship to go to grad school. And then I really had a problem. Do I want to take this or or go further? And there was just that one day on 2nd Street in Sacramento when I walked across the street and realized this is exactly how I want to spend the rest of my life. It was pretty cool being pre-med because the the MDs, I used to live in Santa Rosa, Mm -hmm. and 
I got a job at a doctor's hospital. Oh, my word. And, you know, they're promoting pre-meds. And so they snuck me into surgeries and I got to do all this great stuff. And so it really did come down to a decision about how do you want to spend the rest of your life. And at one point, I really loved the archaeology. And I also realized that uh, sick people sort of pissed me off. <laughs> and so I just flipped the switch and ended up uh, staying at Davis for my master's. Uh-huh. So that's two degrees from the same place. Right. And everybody knows that it's, it's death to uh, just get all your degrees in one place. Exactly. But I got this neat scholarship. Uh-huh. So an NSF thing. Uh-huh. And... So there's a want to stay in this and that. And then we had this guy come along named Ronald Reagan, who was running for governor. And he just had it in, as everybody knew, from the University of California, because there was a bunch of commies. Mm-hmm. And when he got elected, half the faculty of the University of California quit. Oh and there were blanket offers uh, for entire departments to go uh, other places. That's uh, how the City University of New York got built. Wow. That's, uh, that's how the state. So all of a sudden, my faculty changed mm-hmm. because a bunch of them went other places. And wow. so I made the decision, I'm going to stay at Davis. And well, I ended up getting four degrees in eight years. <laughs> and Four um, degrees in eight years? Yeah, yeah, that uh, might be a some kind of record. Some kind of record, absolutely. Then I ended up taking a job in New York, not at the museum, but at the at the City University to teach. I see. So the initial job was at the City University. Yeah, and that was only because Warren Kinsey, who used to teach, maybe, I don't, you yeah, guys probably yeah. didn't know, but Warren had been part of the Reaganites who quit uh, and went to the City University, made huge salary. I don't know if it was double his salary, but it was big. Mm-hmm. And so when they had an opening, he contacted me and said, hey, you interested in this? And uh, I came back to New York and I'd never been east of the Mississippi. <laughs> but uh, he took me around and he knew enough about what it was like to grow up in Davis. So we we did. We went up to Harlem and, and did the yeah. interviews in the bombed out Safeways and all yeah. the places that you taught up there. But he also took me down to the American Museum of Natural History mm-hmm. and said, and this is the kind of place you'll get to hang out. Wow. And uh, it turned amazing. out that the place that he took me to was my office the next year. There you go. There you go. Well, one thing that I, I have to bring up is your uh, pioneering research in the Great Basin that uh, you did for your PhD dissertation that sort of, uh, you know, is a landmark study in a lot of different ways. Can you briefly kind of give us some sound bites on, on how you came to that and how, how that uh, developed? Well, I appreciate what you, you said there. The story at Davis, I was encouraged by my major professor, Marty Baumhoff, to get very involved in the Ecology Institute there. And it was run by a guy named Ken Watt. And he was just revolutionary at the time. And he was one of these leaders. And what he promoted is how ecology was changing at the time. 
and it was about systematic field work, about doing quadrat sampling out in mm. forests. It was about computer simulation. It was about oh very heavily mathematical stuff. And all of those, uh, I took a lot of statistics because my my professor uh, had a degree in statistics from, from Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And all of those things were manifest in my dissertation. Of course. So we did regional random sampling because that's what botanists did when they were in the forest. And we did computer simulation because that's what ecologists were doing at the time. And what I basically did was just try to take the theory that was going on in archaeology, which was then called the new archaeology, and it was great to talk about, but nobody could actually do it. And the Ecology Institute at Davis bridged over to show me, here's what you ought to be doing. It just happens to be in archaeology. So instead of digging a site or a cave, what the idea was, let's take a piece of landscape that's 100 miles long and 15 miles wide and call it a site. How do we approach that? And that was the ecology background. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Well, I think we've, we've brought us uh, full force to this first segment. In our next segment, let's get down to some of the interesting and exciting elements of your career. And at some point, maybe we can segue on over and say a bit about some of your most, most recent research. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ROCKART. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, we're back again. This is the second segment. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we're here and blessed to have Dr. David Hurst Thomas, who was director of the American Museum of Natural History in the area of prehistory, archaeology, anthropology. Mm, not, not director, just no, a no, curator. Just a curator, exactly. And I think the second segment where we're going to go with this is talk a bit about the career of Dr. Thomas in terms of its evolution and where he started his work and where it's continued and what direction it's taken. How about that, Dave? Sounds good to me. Okay. 
This is a time for reflection. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. What did you do uh, moving into uh, the teaching at the university in New York? How did your uh, efforts then go? Well, the, the experience at City University was awful. It was the first year of open oh, enrollment. Wow. Oh, wow. And so tremendous turmoil and a little like today where things were so factionalized politically that uh, half of the, well, the two halves of anthropology were not speaking to each other. Oh, my word. And so I came in and had no idea about walking into this crap, except I knew that uh, I wasn't very comfortable, like I said, teaching in a burned out Safeway. No, of course not. And particularly when I gave an exam. And I think you probably grew up in this, too, at Davis, where there yeah. was the honor system. Oh, of course. Well, i that's all I knew because I, you know, never went I, eight years at the same place. So I gave an exam in, in, uh, in Harlem and came back. And everybody was just sharing answers and doing all this crap. And I just had no idea what was going on there teaching-wise. <laughs> and they... The faculty hated each other, uh, and so the the uh, president of the university had a meeting of anthros and said, you guys are either going to unanimously elect a chair, or I'm going to abolish the department for Puerto Rican studies, which is where the pressure is coming. Wow. And so we had a meeting, and they went with one, and they went with the other. The only way they saved the department was getting this 23-year-old kid out of Davis who didn't know anything about cities to become the chair. <laughs> so we ended up, and my only job was to uh -huh. find somebody good. <laughs> so I got a chance to interview all these great leaders in anthropology. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. fortunately, we hired Eleanor Leacock, uh -huh. who is just a, one of the deans of hunter-gatherer studies. Wow. And... The job came up at the at the museum, and I went up the street and became a curator. That's amazing. So I lucked out, but it was never. Let's see, I've only worked at the museum for uh, forty eight years. Only forty eight. And I've spent nineteen nights in New York City. Wow. You've spent more nights there. I'm sure. A lot of people have. I'm just <laughs> not a. I'm not a city guy. Not a city I'm sitting boy. up here on the Hudson River looking out at the river right now. Oh, wow. And it was just explained to me as a great base of operations. You can run field programs anywhere in the world. Oh, wow. And uh, the museums behind you. Well, what I wanted to do was go back to the Great Basin. Of course. And finally, you know, write a couple of books, but get a chance to go back and do the kind of archaeology we wanted to do there. And so we did. And uh, we're still after it. I also got an opportunity to uh, work in the Sea Islands mm -hmm. off the coast of Georgia. Right. On, and we, uh, we've had multiple projects there. But one of the coolest ones to me growing up in California, I had a thing about California missions. Uh-huh. And that's my mom took me to all 21 oh uh, when I was still in high school. And that's, I think, why I became so interested in history and sure. Native Americans and the rest. Well, we had a chance to there. This island we were working on had a lost Spanish mission. Oh, my word. And it was destroyed in 1680, the same year as the Pueblo Revolt in the American uh -huh. Southwest. Uh -huh. And it had been lost for 300 years. 
And what we were able to do is to use the same techniques we used in my dissertation, regional random sampling and the rest of it, and remote sensing was coming on then. Mm -hmm. And so we found that sucker. And it is incredibly well-preserved and one of the most important Spanish colonial sites in the country. And so we had had a chance to get to use the resources of the museum but also a little bit of the uh, the things I learned at the Ecology Institute at Davis. So you sort of paired the uh, scientific ecological side with the uh, archaeology history and and uh, the essence of discovery, which is fabulous. Yeah, there was that. But where I'd learned to do it was out, you know, in the, in the Great Basin, in, where you can see everything's on the surface you unless you go it. in a cave. Exactly. And you go down in the southeast, and you can't see your feet because <laughs> you're in a swamp. And oh I my word! Nothing about Central Nevada taught uh, me about alligators uh, and no, you know all this no. stuff. So totally we had different, to a different thing. We had to adapt a little bit, but it was I a bet. wonderful opportunity. Tell us a bit about your experience with Gate Cliff, the uh, excavation of that unbelievable cave, and what we learned about prehistory and chronology and, and your incredible efforts there. It was an, a, an enormous contribution to basin history, prehistory, and, and just the anthropology of it all. Well, it was great fun. My dissertation, like I said, was was taking a valley and treating it like a site. What I didn't say is that as I was going, coming in, a kid from a small school, all the good sites were already taken right. by bigger institutions. Sure. And so I was pretty much given the opportunity. You can have the Reese River Valley because everybody know there's, knows there's no caves there. <laughs> So we got to do that. But Uh after you spend three years doing that Uh and making all of these statements about it, you realize how how you're really on on quicksand there, that you have to assume a chronology that comes out of the arrowheads and the spear points. And you have to assume some kind of paleoenvironmental information that you're given about the three stages, uh, the anathermal, autothermal, metathermal, and you've got no precision on anything. It's just all assumptions. So for a kid who wasn't given a cave because all the good ones were taken, and we ended up taking this valley and doing something instead with it, the next thing we did is go look for caves. And we couldn't find any in Reese River, but we did find, go over to Monitor Valley and found some really cool caves, Tokima Cave, which is an awesome mm-hmm. rock art site. Mm-hmm. And as we were just kind of beating the bushes, how do you find caves? Well, we walked around, we drove around, we flew around. and But a lot of what you do is hang out in the bars and <laughs> talk to people who know the landscape a hell of a lot better than you're ever going to know it. Okay. The miners and the ranchers yeah. and everybody. Yeah. And as I was just finishing up my dissertation, we had a big party in Austin, Nevada, population 150. Mm-hmm. And the waitress said, what do you guys do? And we talked to her about it because getting into town was a big deal a couple right. hours away. Right. And she said, oh, you ought to talk to my husband. He's a geologist. And he knows everything out here. And so we got together with Gail Peer, and he said there was this cave out there somewhere in Monitor Valley, but he couldn't remember what 
which canyon it was off of, and yeah. this pretty big landscape. He said, but there are these, these, these red figures. You can see them. They've got headdresses, <laughs> and then there are the yellow ones on the cave walls. So we set out for this quest to find. To find the cave. Find, and well, and it took about a year. Wow. To drive up the canyons, and we sort of know what we were looking for, but we turned the corner, and he was describing it's got this big black uh, uh, deposit, church deposit above it. Wow. And we turned the corner, there and it there it was, and it finally, it was exactly the way he described it, and you crawl under, and you, you could see all the rock art that was up there. Wow. And so we decided to put in some test pits, and... Found a little bit of stuff, but not much, and there wasn't very much lying on the ground. But we decided, that was when I was still at Davis, and then my first shot at the museum was, let's go really see what that sucker has down there. And I did enough reading by then to find out a Columbia professor up the street from where I was in in New York had worked Uh there for a decade, and he called it the Gatecliff Formation. Ah. And so we came back. And ended up spending eight seasons here, there, and every year was our last year because we thought we'd bottom out and then do it. And 40 feet later, we had quite a stratigraphic profile that goes back. 40 feet later. 40 feet later, I think it's the deepest cave or rock shelter in North or South America. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing OSHA didn't come out and look at our sidewalls. (laughs) But uh, it ended up bottoming out of Mazama Ash. So we had 7,000 oh years. Fabulous. And the cool thing, if, if we want to relate this to rock art, sure. is we found these weird incised stones. Yes. And we had 450 of them stacked up inside there, a tradition that we can extend back at least 5,500 years. And now we've we've done lots and lots more more work on gate cliffs since then. We've yeah. recently lots of redating. We've got 100 radiocarbon dates from there now, and we're using the Bayesian work that we can do. We can date the 16 living floors that are in there. Each one can be dated within a human lifespan. Wow, that is fabulous! Absolutely fabulous. I guess fast forward to the next another cave that you worked at that I stopped it and said hello and brought you a, a little present of a projectile point. You were working in the Mazama Ash there, and it was a dry cave, and you found a few things in there, didn't you? You're talking about Hidden Cave. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that was a, that was a good one, too. Yeah. We, uh, we, we, I ended up taking our students there when uh, – when I was working on my dissertation, so I took the UCD students there, and you could barely find the opening. You could crawl back in, and it was a place that uh, off the Carson Sink, that totally dry cave. It goes back to Paleo-Indian times, but mm-hmm. the entrance got sealed off. And in the 1920s, this kid from Fallon, Nevada, was out having a rock fight with his friends. And they were a little worried about rattlesnakes and this and that. But he went over behind a rock and he felt this cold air coming out from behind the rock. Wow. And he dug around and it. they expanded it enough and called it Hidden Cave, mm-hmm. where you could crawl back in 
And it was a big enough enclosed area, totally black, and you could have two NBA games in there side by side. It's huge. Wow. And so we decide, I kept bringing my students there. Sure. Wouldn't it be cool to come and work here? Because there'd been a dig in the 40s and a dig in the 50s from Berkeley. And wouldn't it be neat to do the way we think we know how to do dig now, which is we thought was so awesome, which is, of course, totally outdated now. But uh, how do you dig back in a place like that? Right. And I had a friend, Billy Clulo, down in Berkeley, who mm-hmm. said, I've got some friends in the weathermen who would blow the front of that off just for the publicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do that, no. but we expanded it a little. And uh, uh, a student of mine was working for the BLM, and we had he had money for two weeks of excavation mm-hmm. because it's right next to the the air base in Fallon where they yeah. did Top Gun. Uh-huh. And the uh, the Navy guys would come in and have these campfires and burn tires and do this stuff, and they sure. were tearing up the site. So we were able to extend two weeks of digging into two years. Fabulous. And right now we're doing a virtual reality thing. A VR. With the tribe oh, that's uh, on that. But the since then, and that was back in 1980, yeah. and there have been thousands of people who've gone through the tour there. It is open, and you can see we've got the the profiles are still there, and uh, we're, we're doing a VR thing on it now. That's fabulous. Well, I think in the next segment we can uh, round it up, and you can decide on what particular part of your career you want to focus on. This is a rock art gig. So it's up to you. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the third and final segment. We are honored to have our guest scholar, David Hurst Thomas. And it's wide open, Dave. Why don't you uh, give us a case study and talk about what you think is some of the most important and revolutionary sort of developments with respect to the study of anthropology and archaeology in the in the Americas. How's that? Okay, let's just get a little personal. I talked a little bit about how I switched over from pre-med to anthropology because I basically thought the Indians had gotten screwed in this country. And when I was in graduate school, the Alcatraz in the middle of the bay had been taken over by a group that would be called AIM. And they were trying to highlight what was going on 
in Indian country in a way that would tap into feelings about Vietnam and African-Americans and the rest. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so I, I wanted to sign up. What can I do? I'll come out. I'll do everything. I grew up around there. And they said, you can't do anything for us. We're in control. If you really want to do something, you can lick some stamps and put them on envelopes. And I thought, damn, uh, so much for becoming an anthropologist and trying to do something meaningful in Indian country. So I was still fascinated by what we now call Native American history. And when I went out to do my dissertation work, I talked to my, my faculty about that. How do we, what do we do about relating this to Indian country? And I was taught and I believed that the best thing we can do is lie to them. The real Indians have become extinct. All Indians now are cowboys. They don't know anything about their own history. And if they want to, if you're doing your job and want to help Native Americans, you have them read your books, have them hear you when you testify in court about land claims. And if they ever come out on your dig, lie to them and tell them you're a geologist. So that was the way I was raised. And it took a long time for me to find out what was really wrong with that. Exactly. And I had, I had quite a uh, comeuppance, uh, long story, but I ended up being a founding trustee of the National Museum of the American Indian. Right. And it was a case where there was a there was an awesome museum on 160th Street in New York that went broke because the neighborhood changed. One thing led to another and the federal government took it over. And it was a board controlled by Indians, had to be 80 percent. And I was sort of the token white guy on the board. Gotcha. And the reason was that the secretary of the Smithsonian at the time was Robert McCormick Adams, mm -hmm. who was an archaeologist, and he thought an archaeologist ought to be in that situation, and that turned out to be me. Okay. Well, it was a it was a rough time for me. This the, that was the that museum was founded in 1989, the same year with the legislation that created NAGPRA in 1990. Sure. Tied together, and. I thought I could show up on the board and I would have all this great insights about radiocarbon dates and first steps across the land bridge and all of this. And we had some really tough times. Those first few years, uh, we had a meeting down. I, w I was the token white guy with David Rockefeller hmm. and Senator Inouye. And we had a meeting downtown at the Custom House, and the thought was, you can't take everything away from New York because of the tax breaks and this and that, so let's create a museum. So we ended up meeting down there, creating a museum. The short story is that through that process, I understood there was really nothing in my anthropological background that was relevant to Indian country at the time. I knew nothing about the law affecting Native Americans. I knew nothing about the land status. 
And I learned more on that board in a decade. I ended up spending 15 years on that board than I learned in graduate school. Exactly. So the, the upshot of it was a book called Skull Wars, ah. which was trying to take a look at the real impact of anthropology on Indian America. And it was a, it was a lot of my growing experience that on that board, very difficult, and there are some, there are some pretty ugly stories that uh, have come out of there. Uh-huh. But I was fortunate enough to make some friends, and one of them was Vine Deloria, oh my uh, word, Junior, sure. Uh, and uh, Vine ended up writing the the introduction to Skull Wars, but it it was a way then, which was published in two thousand, but it sort of separated me from my generation. Okay. Because most of the anthro-Americans that came out of school when I did still believed that we ought to lie to the Indians, we ought to tell them we're geologists, we ought to keep the collections because there's something so important in this that'll save humanity. Right. We don't think that about science anymore. No, no. So now what we're trying to do is – and. It, it certainly ties in with what's gone on in this country in the last year. Yeah. Is understanding that we, we need to mistrust the authority figures and find better ways for, if we listen to science at all, for science to help out Indian country rather than just claim you own it and lock it up in the museums. Right. So it's a, it's sort of a way to outreach to them, listen to them, and take what they have to say and participate in a reciprocal and unconditional basis. Well, you know about this too, because exactly. you, you're, you're involved with it as well. But it, it goes... So against what I learned. Exactly. No, my, not myself as well. Yeah. What we learned when we were in graduate school and now trying to find a way to make this work. So we're attacking what are the questions that Indian country wants to have answered. Right. And in my I've, – I've been fortunate to work in multiple places across the country. And in some cases – I can find those commonalities and we can work with that. And in other cases, there is so much resentment about what we've done, well-meaning at the time, over the last couple of decades, that it's very difficult times. Yeah, it's very challenging. I personally was blessed to uh, work with Native people and to produce a book that won the Governor's Award. It was on the the, uh, Indigenous people of the uh, Tehachapi Mountains in Western Mojave Desert, were called yeah. the Kauaiasu. It was uh, a blessing. In the four years we did the book, I learned more about Native, Indigenous, cosmology, lifeways, philosophy, perspective, than I did in 40 years of attempting to understand them archaeologically. I have yeah, to tell there you that. go. Yeah. So it's a, it's a parallel world. What's the takeaway from your time with Native Americans and your time with doing archaeological research, what is the, what's the lessons that we may have gleaned for our brothers and sisters here in the United States who need a positive perspective 
coming out of this COVID madness and trying to live a life that's perhaps more productive and ethical, responsible, virtuous, and, and loving. Well, I'm not sure there is a single takeaway that I've, I've been involved. We have one of the largest Native American collections in the world at my yes, museum. of course. And we've been working on, on repatriation. We're going to have to take another look at that. We've got a statue outside my museum of Theodore Roosevelt that I'm spending a lot of time on. And we did a video about that is just totally inappropriate and needs to come down. I see. And so we're, we're working on that. But it, it, to me, sort of the larger sense is I'm, you know, you, you and I both know as you get further in your career, you've, you've got access to a lot of things you didn't have before. And I'm interested right now what I'm, I'm specifically working on. And we didn't talk about the prayer stones. Right. But there's if it's one thing for science for archaeologists say to get it wrong about the arrowheads right the projectile points might not work the way that i said they did in my dissertation and we can argue about that and their academic points to be made and lost uh, in arguments like that but when it affects real people today in indian country when we make a mistake about something, and I'm talking about the Numic expansion here, sure. that cuts people out of their own history in a way that has legal and political ramifications, we better as scientists be sure we've got that right. And I'm not so sure we do. Exactly. Well, I think that's an interesting takeaway and a lesson. And I have to say, this has been a, a remarkable and wide ranging interview and a, a just a tremendous contribution and a wonder for me so i hope that uh, our listeners appreciate the time that you've spent i know they do and uh, thank you david for coming on board the uh, rock art podcast on the archaeology podcast network alan appreciate it it's a pleasure my pleasure thank you all god bless bye-bye see you next week Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.